You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke 11, 17 through 28. <clears throat> but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says... I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, please speak to us this morning. Soften our hearts and our minds to hear what you have to say, not merely what we want you to say. Give us the courage and will to respond faithfully. And transform us in heart and mind and spirit, not simply for ourselves, but for your glory and for the blessing of all the people, organizations, and circumstances within our influence. Also, Father, Central Middle School is a blessing to us. You've been so kind to make this our home. So please use our presence here to bring your love to the students, faculty, and the administration in noticeable ways. Bring them hope, peace, and endurance. Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're with us for the first time, and we're really glad you're here. Um, and I, I, if you've been here a long time, uh, you just haven't seen me in a little while, I, I, I've missed you. Um, every time I, I take a little break uh, from preaching, like I don't preach for a couple of weeks, uh, when I try to get back into it and look at the passage, I feel like the passage starts to bully me. Like, uh, like I don't know exactly what to do with it. And, and I pick this passage because it, it intrigues me. And I actually think this passage, it, it speaks to the power to change and I think it tells us that there's actually multiple powers to change, but there's this really stark warning where Jesus says, not all powers to change that might change you are the same. 
And if you change by any other means than by my indwelling presence, and there can be other things that come along with that, because all truth is God's truth, but if you change by any other means than my indwelling presence, in the end, it'll be worse. And, and so it's a really scary warning. I mean, in it we have this kind of, uh, you know, demon cast out, goes out and wanders in the desert. And it was like, man, this is not the vacation home I was looking for. Comes back to the original host, and it's far worse. You know, as we, um, in January, just these first few weeks, we uh, are taking passages from the Seeing Jesus Together Bible reading plan. And so uh, the Seeing Jesus Together Bible reading plan, it, it's one of our main modes of discipleship. Like we want to bully you into reading the Bible. Like we want to trick you. We want to talk about it. And then you get you to nod your head like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about, whether you're lying or not. But if you're lying, we want you to be like, oh man, maybe I should read that. We want you to read the scriptures. We want to bully. This actually surprised most people, but in my household, I've got four kids. Uh, my youngest, Anna, she is by far the biggest bully in our house. Man, she bullies everybody. I mean, it's it really kind of unbelievable. Like Anna, 48-pound, cute, blonde hair, green hide, Anna baby sunshine bullies me. Like there's probably not a week that goes by that at some point I don't look at her and I say, hey, you weigh 48 pounds, you better stop bullying me. I'm a man, and I'll tell mom. I mean, there's not a week that goes by. And, and so, like, I actually want to be your 48-pound blonde hair, used to be blonde hair, green eyes, still green eyes, bully. I want you to look at the scriptures, and I want you to feel like you need them, and I want you to be desperate for the truth that finds in them. I want so many of the things that these quotes that I'm about to lead you in, I want you to feel them. I, I want you to know that under every commercial and every movie and every relationship that you have, there is a message that is vying for your attention, that is vying for your allegiance, whether you acknowledge it or see it or not. There is something there. And the scriptures pull us and ground us and tell us what is really, really true. They hold us. And so listen to some of these quotes. These are just some pastors, uh, some uh, no longer with us. But listen, R.C. Sproul, he says this, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything else but that in which God has placed it, his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity. And that power is focused on the scriptures. Or, or Tim Keller says it like this, Satan doesn't control us with fang marks on the flesh, but with lies in our hearts. Our best defense in the fight against his lies is not the production of incantations, but the rehearsal of truth, biblical truth. Or Charles Spurgeon, he says this, he says, nobody ever outgrows the scriptures. The book widens and deepens with our years. And then he goes on elsewhere and he says this, within the scriptures there is a balm for every wound, a salve for every sore. Like all of these pastors are trying to tell us that there is a power to change. There is truth to fight with and there is healing to apply to our wounds within the scriptures. And we want you to read them. And so we, we come to Luke 11, 
And what we see, and this is from the Bible reading plan, is it talks about power to change. It talks about the power for lasting change, change that will stand, that will hold us, and it challenges and it widens our view of the fight that is around us. And so look at the text. We're actually going to back up just a little bit, verse 14, but I want you to look at it. First, this shows that there is a war around us. Like it shows pervasively through the passages, this image is like, look at some of this terminology. Like we see competing kingdoms in the presence of a war. Verse 17 and 18, we see kingdoms and households is divided at war and they can't stand if they're divided. There's a war around us. Now, now look at verse 18. In verse 18, it describes this war as a spiritual war. Like Satan is a commander of demonic forces and he's set against our lives. In verse 19 through 20, it says, There is the kingdom of God that is at hand and is laying siege to Satan's forces. Like the language of warfare is all over this. Matter of fact, the, the word we see over and over, cast out, it actually has military roots describing how you expel an enemy from a land. And so it means that we have a problem in our homes. We have a problem around us. And then verse 21 and 22, it talks about armored guards that be, are attacked. And it talks about spoils of war. And so it shows a war. It shows a spiritual war. It says that you are in this spiritual war whether you like it or not. Like verse 23, Jesus says this. He says, like, you are either with me or you are against me. You either gather or you scatter. And so it means we are born in this war and there's no, like, neutrality. There is no Switzerland in this war. Switzerland is not Switzerland in this war. There is no neutrality. And then it gets even worse. Like, just look at this section, 24 through 26. It describes your enemy as demonic with an insatiable thirst to dominate and torment your life. You know, and then no one is left out of this war. Like if you look at the end, I added these last few verses because, you know, you get this sweet old lady at the end of it, like Jesus is teaching, like he just cast a demon out of this guy who's suffering from mutinous. The, the Pharisees look at him and they can't deny what's happened. So they say, man, you do it by the power of Beelzebul. And, you know, that means the Satan. And then, you know, he, he says, no, 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 that's not how I do it. I do it by the finger of God. And then he does all this teaching and there's power in it. And this sweet little old lady, I mean, it doesn't say she's old, but I just picture her old. She basically just says, amen. And she says, man, bless your mama. Uh, you are way better than my worthless child. And then Jesus doesn't even let her off the hook. Jesus says, no, no, no. Not for family relationships are you blessed. Not that kind of armor. But blessed is the one who hears and keeps my word, the word of the Lord. And so, like, all throughout of this, like, we see people trapped in a battle. And it also kind of warns us, like, be careful what you amen, you know. I mean, and we don't, I, I wish you guys amen more, um, you know. I, I, no one? Okay. Uh, one of my very first sermons, I actually preached on a mission trip in East St. Louis. And, uh, I mean, and there were a lot of amens in that room. It was actually a recovery house. 
And so within that room was a desperation of men who had seen the fangs of Satan in their life, had seen addiction growing in their life. And when they heard truth, they wanted to be a part of it and they wanted to say amen. But it was extra hard for me because this was also with our youth musical group. I mean, I just got lumped in and I had a part where I was the lamb that ran away and got hurt. And I had one line where I said, but look at my little Paul, it hurts bad. It's really hard to preach in a halfway house after that's your line. But man, what I saw in the room was desperation for hope, a dependence upon the scriptures. So when every truth came across, there was something inside of these men that says, I know that's true. I know that's true. And so in Luke 11, Jesus is telling us something true and something scary. You are in a devastating spiritual war. There is pain in this war, and that pain can drive you to want to get help. But be careful about the help that you get, because all help besides the dwelling power of Jesus, the forgiving power of Jesus, and the sending and dwelling power of the Holy Spirit, all help besides that will leave you worse in the end. And so let's take a look at this. Number one, war and pain. You are in a devastating spiritual war and you feel the pain of it. And after, you know, furthermore, Satan loves to silence believers into all kinds of levels of silence. And so take a look at verse 14. It says, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Now, like, so right away, we're going to see some people see what Jesus is doing and it amazes them and they want to be a part of it. But we're going to see in just a minute, other people see what he's doing and they can't deny what he's doing, but they don't want to be a part of it. So they slander him. So something amazing is happening. And, and I don't pretend to know what the pain of being mute would be like at all. Like, I suffer from the opposite problem. Like, I mean, in grade school, uh, I couldn't whisper. I didn't have the gift of whispering. And so I'd be in the back of the room, like, hey, what'd you get a number four? And from the front of the teacher, my teacher would say, from the front of the class, the teacher would be like, Casey, stop talking. I'm like, how does she hear me? You know, when my son was uh, like in kindergarten, his teacher asked us if we had his hearing checked because he was so loud. And my wife just shook her head and said, he is third generation loud. Papa John is loud. His dad, Casey, is loud. It's a curse that he has to learn to use. Just third generation loud. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know what it'd actually be like to be mute. I mean, still able to communicate. But could you imagine trying to communicate on a deep, intimate level with, with sign language and others? I'm sure there's a way, but it's difficult to connect with people when you don't have words. Like it's hard enough to connect people when you do have words. And I think there's all kinds of moments. I think there's all kinds of moments that Satan wants to steal our words. You know, th this comes on the end. If you look at the passage before, the disciples just came and they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And so he, he teaches, like, you know, my Father who art in heaven, we get the Lord's Prayer, and then he gets down and he gives us a story about, like, a kid who wants food, and he goes to his dad, and he can trust that his dad's going to give him good food. It teaches, like, desperation that our Father in heaven responds to our cries. 
And if what the scriptures say is true about prayer, like Satan would love to silence that. But there's all kinds of things that he would love to silence. He would love to silence reconciliation between husband and wife or reconciliation between friends or, or parent and child. He'd love to silence like the words that are so hard to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Matter of fact, you should practice that right now. Say it with me. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Now, if someone says that to you, look at me. You need to say, you're forgiven. Practice saying that you're forgiven. And so Satan would love to silence all kinds of things like that. But, but this situation, and you know, I, I know this opens up a worldview where you know, skeptics start to look at that. And they read biblical passages like this, and they dismiss them with a skeptical, snooty smug, saying things like, man, that is so pre-scientific. You know, we, we now know, like, like those people, like they, they thought all ailments were just spiritually driven and demonic forces, but we know about bacteria, and we know about viruses, and we know about chemical imbalances, and we know about all of these things. That is so narrow-minded. I just, if that's where you are, I don't think you've read the Bible very carefully. And I actually think Jesus is saying to you, no, you're narrow-minded. You're, you're, you're too reductionistic because if we look at the scriptures, Jesus doesn't handle everybody's problem the same. Like Jesus sometimes simply helps people with physical problems. There's all times in scripture where the blind, they see, the lame, they walk, crooked hands are made straight and whole. He doesn't say, man, this is a demon. So sometimes he sees the origin of the problem as just physical. Sometimes he sees it as relational. The prostitutes are elevated. The tax collectors are invited to the party. The poor are given an audience and wayward, rebellious sons are welcomed back. Sometimes he doesn't see it as physical or relation, relational, but he sees it as a morality problem. He says things like this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or he looks at people and he says, go and sin no more. Or he says, repent before something worse happens to you. Sometimes he deals like on that spiritual level. And sometimes he looks at someone and he says their problem, the origin of their problem is demonic. They're entangled and harassed by spiritual forces. They need my spiritual authority over their lives. And so Jesus isn't simplistic or narrow-minded. He's not unaware of the complexity of problems. He sees physical problems. He sees psychological problems. He sees moral problems, and he sees spiritual problems. And, and so here he's dealing with what he says is a spiritual problem. Does that mean everyone who has mutinous is, is demonically influenced or held captive? And the answer is no, but this guy is. And so most people, like I just want to make this appeal. If you're still like, man, I don't know about this you know, demon thing, and maybe you've heard people kind of blame everything on, on spiritual factors when it's like, yeah, my pipe's broke, man. It must be Satan. No, man, you need to be dripping water in weather like this. I have dripped hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water for the last like two weeks. I mean, I, if you're new, man, the, the vortex isn't always here, but it's here now. But I just want to ask this. Most people believe that there could be a God, meaning there could be good spiritual forces. The Bible teaches that there's also evil spiritual forces. 
And I, I'd want to go just one more. Like, doesn't it seem like evil has a predictable way of infiltrating every society, in every time, in every class of affluence, on every level of education, everywhere, always? Is it so hard to believe that there might be something that we can't see that weighs its influence and leans us one way or another? And to summarize kind of what the Bible kind of teaches about the cosmos and the world that we live, the Bible tells us that Satan and his demons, formal angels, waged war against God in heaven, and they lost that war. And in losing that war, they were cast out of heaven. We can read about it in Revelations 12. Satan then waged war against mankind and tempted us to doubt God's goodness, and he won that war. And you can read about it in Genesis 3. And that's why the Bible calls him the prince of this world. That's Ephesians 2, John 12, 2 Corinthians 4. We lost and we failed, but in the very moment of losing and failing, and the war entering our lives. In that very moment, you have a Genesis 3.16. A lot of theologians call it the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, where God promises from the line of the woman there's going to come a Savior, and that Savior is going to do battle with Satan, and he's going to crush his head. So there's always been this hope and this plan of redemption. And so the New Testament is showing power over all the ramifications of loss. Jesus has power over physical problems, relational problems, sin problems, spiritual problems. He's come to the blind to bind the strong man. In verse 21, it says here that he will fill and protect our lives. And so the first thing is you are in a spiritual war. Like there is a spiritual war around us. And like it brings us to places, and sometimes it can bring us to places of mutinous where we don't say the things that we should say, or we're desperate to say something, but we just can't find the words to say. Like I would just say, man, in those moments, man, if you're desperate to say something because relational strain, man, just pray. God, give me the right words. And so we see this war kind of settle in. We see, man, this guy probably felt really isolated, probably felt really cut off. Man, Satan loves to dominate the airspace of our life with his messages. He wants to steal your words, to make you mute, to keep you from speaking hope to a hurting world. This man was in pain. And Jesus had solutions for this pain. And so the first, we see this bridge between war and pain. Now we bridge something else, pain to help. And so pain has a way of making you look for help. It has a way of making you want solutions. And so when we hurt, we want something to overpower the pain in our lives. When I was a freshman in college, um, I was living in the dorms, and my RA, his name was Dwayne. Dwayne was like the coolest guy I've ever been around. Like, he just looked cool, he talked cool, um, and he didn't, I don't know what RAs do, he didn't do a whole lot. But at the end of the semester, at the beginning of the semester, we had to have a meeting where they just kind of said, hey, here's the rules, you get kicked out of school, don't do it. If you need help, talk to me. And I don't know if anyone ever talked to him. I mean, I just say hi to him in the hallway. At the end of the semester, we had another little talk where he just said, hey, this is when you have to be out of the dorms. You can't leave food. If you have an animal, you're wrong. Get rid of the animal. And he got through the little checklist, and then he stood up, and he said, hey, I want to speak from a personal level. Some of you guys have a drinking problem. Seek help. And the meeting was over. Like, he just walked out. 
Now, I came back the next semester and like, I didn't see anything really change because the pain in people's lives hadn't driven them to help yet. Pain has a way of driving us to help. When I was a freshman in high school, I know we're going back. This is the 1900s, y'all. Uh, we're going back. When I was a freshman in high school, I was wrestling and I broke my wrist. And I mean, you should see the other guy. There was nothing wrong with him. His name is Chance. He was one of my best friends, okay? But I, I broke my wrist. And I remember thinking, oh, that doesn't feel good. I remember just walking around. And when I get hurt, I don't know why, I just laugh. I just like, oh, man, I don't know. It just hurts. I just kind of do that. I mean, I cut my finger on the table saw, and I was like, I hope it's still there. I couldn't look at it. Um, Liv was in a princess outfit. She was younger, uh, running around the garage. I still blame her for it. But I remember looking down like, is it still there? Okay, it's there. And it was just hurt, and I was laughing. And so I'm walking around the wrestling room just kind of like laughing. And so I first go to my coach because pain was driving me for help. And so I go to my coach. His name was Maddox, also Coach Maddox, not related. And I go to him, and I'm like, I think I hurt my wrist. And he told me, well, you should walk it off. And I remember thinking, how does that work? It's my wrist. And so then that didn't help. So I kept going. So he sent me to the manager. Now she was also a freshman and her name was Michelle. And I don't think she had medical training, but she put ice on it and it still hurt. So then I went to my mom, you know, I was like, I went home. I was like, man, it hurts. And she just kind of hugged me and it didn't help either. But um, then we went to the doctor Dr. Potter, friend of the family. And I remember, so I was in there, I was like, man, it hurts. And he was like, does it hurt when you do this? And he made me grip something and move it. And I was like, yes, that hurts a lot. And he said, don't do it then. And I was like, <laughs> did you go to school for this? You know? But so pain was driving me to find help. One thing didn't help. And I went to another thing and I went to another thing and I went to another thing. Man, there's a, there's a thing, when we experience pain, we look for ways to make that pain stop. And we actually see that there's a division where people are looking and there's different kinds of help, but not all help is the same. And so the religious leaders, they, they don't like Jesus, but they can't deny what he's doing and everyone is seeing it. Like They see what he's doing and they don't want to see what he's doing. And so they accuse him and say, man, this must be by the power of Beelzebul. And every time I, I see Beelzebul, I always say Beelzebub. And, you know, I looked it up and it's good because there's different spellings. It actually is Beelzebub. But I actually think I say Beelzebub because my three daughters right now, uh, for some reason, they're saying bub at the end of every sentence. Like they are like frat guying out. They're like, hey, man, what do you think about that bub? And I'm like, I'm your dad. Don't call me bub, you know. But like, they say it's not from God, it's from Beelzebul. And so like what we see here is like, do you see the different means of help? So look at verse 15 through 19. They accuse him of using Satan, of worshiping Satan to have power over these demons. And then verse 19, he says, but what about your followers? If, if your followers cast out demons, are they worshiping Satan also? And they don't answer, but we can assume they're saying no. And Jesus doesn't say otherwise. He doesn't say, yeah, 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 they're using the prince of darkness. But he says, they're not coming to me. Like in verse 20, he goes on and he says, listen, but if I'm casting out demons by the, look at the phrase in verse 20, by the finger of God then the kingdom of God has come. 
Now, when they say finger of God, like the Pharisees would have thought about at least two places in Scripture where you see that exact phrase, the finger of God. They would have thought about like Exodus 8, Exodus 8, 19. And so plague after plague had come from God through Moses. And each time Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, let God's people go or something bad is going to happen. And up to this point, Pharaoh dismissed over and over what was happening because his magicians could do the same thing. They could produce what was happening through arts or trickery or something. And so he wasn't taking it serious. But suddenly in chapter 8, when it comes to the frogs, they couldn't reproduce it. And they come to Pharaoh and they say this. They say, this is the finger of God. The finger of God, God's movement upon us, the genuine power of God on display to rescue God's people from the cruel slavery under Pharaoh. Jesus is attributing this power to his actions. He's saying, through me, God's finger is freeing my people from Satan's bondage. And so they would have said, man, you're claiming to have the finger of God and to point it in different directions to fix problems. You're claiming authority but they might have also thought about Exodus 31, verse 18. In Exodus 31, we get the description of how the Ten Commandments came, and they say it was inscribed by the finger of God. So the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments, the law that we're supposed to live by. And so Jesus is saying that same finger that has authority to say what is and what is not and what goes and what doesn't go is my finger. And so that makes phrases like when he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath in Matthew 12, or I am the bread of life in John 6, or I am the living water that can satisfy forever in John 4, or look at the scriptures, everything Moses and all the prophets, everything they said was actually about me in John 5 and Luke 24, or when he says to them, Pharisees, the tax collectors and the prostitutes get into the kingdom before you. He's saying, I have this kind of authority. See, the, the Pharisees cast out demons, but they were against Jesus. Like, like was it legit? Jesus doesn't say otherwise. Like, I, I think he's talking about the complexity of a human person, that some things are relational, some things are physical, some things are spiritual, but all of these things are bound up in a body and they affect one another. And I think he's saying, man, there's different ways to leverage help. Like there's different ways to kind of clean a house up. There's different ways to get help. But every way that is not including me to indwell the life of you, to indwell your house, will be worse in the end. And so look, look at verse 21. Jesus gives this analogy to try to describe this. You know, this is after the, or the Pharisees would have to say, like, man, we, what do we say? I mean, we say he's doing this by the authority uh, of demonic influence, but man, he has authority over the demonic. He has authority over sea, wind, and rain. He has authority over disease. He has authority over death. We can't deny that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Like We can't deny these things, so we just slander him. But look at verse 21. This is where we get the analogy. It says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than him attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and then divides the spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
And so ultimately what this is saying, it's saying Satan is the strong man, the prince of this world, and Jesus is stronger and he has entered in and he has bound Satan and now he's looting his people out of the control of Satan. And so he is saving people left and right. And so there is hope. Jesus has come and he can see your problems and he can save you. But I think it's also given us a principle of how do we defeat problems and pain. Pain and problems are defeated by bringing in a stronger power. But, but not everything that works is good in the end, or not everything that works is ultimately true. And so antibiotics, you get sick, it's bacterial, you get antibiotics. If it's the right antibiotics, it overpowers the bacteria and makes you better. Okay, but there's also studies and people get on placebos and they take a pill and they get better. Not everything that works is true. Or, or that there's painkillers. And, and so, I mean, you have pain and you're like, man, I don't like pain. So I try to kill the pain, but I haven't dealt with the root problem. I just feel better and suddenly I don't care about the problem anymore. Not everything that helps is good in the end. And so... What he's saying is, man, there are powers that help us push things out. But he's saying not everything that you use to fix your problems and pain is good in the end. It might actually be way, way worse. And so we looked at war and pain. You're in a devastating spiritual war. We looked at pain and help. Pain has a way of making you look for help, but not all help is true, and some will actually kill you in the end. And now I want to look at unfilled and unprotected. Some help will destroy you in the end. And so if it might fix the presenting problem, but it makes it worse in the end if you feel with the wrong thing and it's not more powerful. And so look at verse 24. In verse 24 it says, we get this other like weird story. It says, when the unclean spirit, so he just cast out a demon. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking to rest and finding none. And so let's just stop there for a second. Like a lot of people look at this and like, man, man, uh, demons like, like warm weather, you know, like dry, arid places. I don't, I don't know what it means. I think what it means is they don't like the beauty of what God has created. They want to destroy everything that God has created. They hate God. They hate the beauty that he's instilled in this world. And he made you in his image, so he especially hates you. They, they seek devastation. They seek ruin. They want to tear apart everything that God has put in place. And so but they go into this waterless, dry, arid places, places where life doesn't happen, where beauty doesn't happen. And it says, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And so let me just kind of summarize what we've learned. Like Jesus is saying demons are real. He's saying demons are sometimes the cause of the pain in our lives. He's saying demons primarily, this is broader scripture, demons primarily use thoughts to capture us. 
They, they poison us with lies, bind us up in hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness. They, they love to hurt relationships, to lock us up in isolation and mistrust. We get ideas of this, like from John 10, 10, that Satan and his demons have come to still kill and destroy. We get the idea of how they hang on to us. Ephesians 4, verse 27, it says that you know we shouldn't give Satan a, a foothold, just a place that he can really grab a hold of our lives. And if we foster unforgiveness and hatred and bitterness, it becomes a strong pull. He says, be careful. But he also tells us that a demonic hold in your life doesn't have a chance against Jesus. It doesn't have a chance. But he says, but when you banish the mess of your life in other ways, in the end, it may be way worse. And so let me give you a couple examples. Addiction. Dwayne, R.A., standing up. Like, really, one of the smoothest guys. He just stood up and was like, some of you have a drinking problem. Seek help. And then the meeting was over. Like, there are other ways to seek help. Like, if you get into AA, it's going to talk about you have to have a power outside of yourself. But they don't want to talk about Jesus anymore, so they talk about whatever power you want. But it's these Christian principles that you have to see a need in your life and something bigger than you. And so people hope in all kinds of different things. And, like, God is gracious, and he gives help. So, but what if that belief of like, man, I just need help. I don't want to be one of those poor, pathetic drunks. I'm better than that. And so you fill your heart with, I'm better than that. I think Jesus says the end will be worse than the beginning. You might never take a drink again, or you might never use drugs again, but you will despise the people that do. What if the eternity push of that is way worse? Or, or think about this, like irresponsibility. Like you can confront someone on being irresponsible and help them clean their house and order their life by saying something like, people who can't control their lives are not respectable. And so they say, man, I want to be respectable. I want people to think good of me. And so they start to put their lives in order and they start to pay bills on time. They show up to church on time. So we don't have any of those people. Um, And so they start to do all kinds of stuff and they look at other people and they're like, we got an amen. Thank you. Finally, blessed is the mother who nursed you. Um. (laughs) But so all kinds of things start to build up and we start to give ourselves to this idea. If people respect me, I'm okay. See, that kind of power in your life, it's not strong enough to keep out all the demonic forces, but it can keep your house in order. But Jesus is saying, man, you might be way worse in the end when you live for people's approval and their respect and sacrifice isn't enough to win them every time. It might be way worse. Or think about this. You have a son and, and man, he's scared and he's crying. And man, you kind of want to help him get a grip of his life. So maybe you say something like, you know, maybe you say, say, hey, men are supposed to be strong and men don't ever cry. And he might be able to bite his bottom lip and kind of suck it up and say, man, I'm, I want to be a man. I'm not, I'm not going to show weakness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just gird it up and I'm going to fight through those cries. And when those commercials come on that make me cry, I'll just say, man, there's something in my eye. I'm not going to let anyone see my weakness. 
But that kind of thing filling my heart is saying, man, I can't ever be wrong. I can't ever show weakness. I can't ever let people see my fears, my sadnesses, my failures, or my hurts. And you try to enter into an intimate relationship with something like that haunting your heart, it's going to be way worse in the end. See, the power that we use to drive something out, it might help us in the moment, but it might be way worse in the end. And so look back at verse 22. Like in the first kind of story, it says a strong man, you know, he has this armor, but it's not strong enough. So he takes the armor away. Sometimes the armor that we run to, to alleviate our pains or our addictions, our deficiencies, is not strong enough to really keep us, you know, safe, but it helps us in the moment. And so the question is, like, what are you running to? When pain is in your life, man, what armor are you trusting in? And so I added verse 27 and 28 because I think it expresses another kind of armor that we run to to be safe. Or this, it says, blessed. Happy is the life. The blessedness that we see in the Beatitudes that only God can give some sort of like status or place that is above. So even when I face poverty or I face slander or I face all the different things that we see in Matthew 5, like there is a state inside of me that holds me. It doesn't mean I don't feel doubt. It doesn't mean I don't feel affliction and hurt and problems. It means that there's something holding me, filling my house. And so look at verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Like this lady was just impressed with Jesus. And I, he said, I, you know, she said, I bet your mom is so proud of you. I bet she, you know, shows the pictures and she's always like bragging, you know, to the other, you know, you know, the other women, like, man, my son just, you know, raised a guy from the dead. What is your son doing these days? You know, I mean, like, I bet he's so proud. Look at this following. Look how successful my son is. Like, we look at relationships and we think they will fix us. So we say things, man, the best, or we believe things. I mean, I don't know if anyone actually says this out loud. You know, the best way to get over an ex is the next. We don't say it because it sounds like a user. It sounds like really, really shallow. But when I have to unpack the hurts in my life, it's easier just to throw them on someone else. But the problem is I start to use people as utility and they can't fix my problem. And all that baggage just keeps growing and growing and growing. And pretty soon no one can bear it. And so it's worst in the end. Or we look at relationships and we say things like, man, if my husband was like that, then I wouldn't hate myself. And it works for a while. Man, you, you, you get married and you're like, oh, man, this is great. But what happens is then he wounds you and the fears and insecurities grow and it's worse in the end. The armor of marriage wasn't strong enough. Or we'll flip it to the other side. We say, man, if I had a wife like that, then my porn addiction would be a thing of the past. Like, like you hear this, like marriage will not like do that. It won't fix you, but you don't really believe it. You're like, well, I mean, I mean, you know, if I'm married, I mean, how, how would that happen? But what happens is for a while it helps. But then frustration sets in. You get let down, you get rejected. And what happens is porn comes back with six of its buddies and it's worse in the end. The armor of intimacy in marriage is not strong enough. 
It's not strong enough to hold you. In the end, you're now hurting more than just you. You're hurting someone else in a deep, deep way. So verse 27, she says, man, blessed, protected, happy. Blessed is the person, you know, that's relationship with you. But then look, look at verse 28. Jesus, he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Hear and keep. Like you must hear the word of God and then there has to be a keeping of it. And like, I don't want you to walk away. Like you must hear the gospel and there must be some sort of response. And then the believer, we have to be reminded of the gospel. Every time it is before us, we have to tell ourselves the gospel. We have to preach the gospel. I am accepted because what God has done, he is always glad to see me. He never crosses his arm like a father in Luke 15. You know, he doesn't cross his arm and be like, hey, let me hear the I'm sorry speech and we'll put you on probation. He celebrates your return. He wraps you up, throws a party. The Bible says that there is a party in heaven for every wayward son that returns. Like, blessed is that kind of thing that hears and keeps. And then you have a John 10 that says, man, the keeping is not up to you. God is holding on to you. Jesus is holding on to you. You are in his hand and no one can snatch you out of his hand. But this hearing and this keeping. And so let me just take you two verses about hearing and keeping. Romans 10. It says this, but they have not obey, all obeyed the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us. The gospel is a message. It's a story of what has already been accomplished that we need to respond to. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And so there is a hearing and there's a taking in and there's being reminded of what is really true. There is a spiritual war all around us <coughs> that doesn't attack us by fangs in the flesh, but attacks us by lies in the heart. That there are some things that our pain is going to drive us to and it'll help in the moment. But man, if it's not surrendering to Jesus, it'll be worse in the end. Hearing the word of Christ. But then we also have this keeping or believing. And so 1 John 3.23, this keeping idea of his commandments, it says, and this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded. Only Jesus can fill the house of your heart and keep it. He is the only one that has armor that can't be taken away. Let me pray for us. Um, Lord, gosh, as we move to communion, everything about the table reminds us of something about the gospel. First, like it's open to all. If you trust Jesus, this is for you. You bring nothing to the table but what you have in your soul. And whatever you have, the problems, the brokenness, the doubts, you just bring it in an act of worship and it's all you come with. Everything else is provided. And so what has been provided for you? The broken body of Jesus represented in the bread and the spilt blood of Jesus represented in the grape juice or the wine. It's all been accomplished for you. And so if you are trusting in Jesus, 
If you look at the scriptures and you say, man, I am a Christian, I, I mess up, and maybe I didn't have a good week, but I am trusting in Jesus, man, we invite you to communion. If you're not a Christian and you're just like, man, I don't know about this Jesus thing, I just kind of think about it, man, we ask you to sit there. People are going to be moving at different times. You won't feel weird. Everyone's been in that seat before. And we ask you to contemplate the things that you've heard, especially the verses at the end. Not all have obeyed the gospel, but those who have heard. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. What has Jesus said in this passage? Or, or uh, uh, 1 John 3 that, man, what does it mean to keep the command of God? And he says very plainly, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus. That is the gospel. That is how we respond to it. Or you might find yourself, man, I feel a problem in my life and in my soul, and I just want someone to pray for me. And we have people behind the black screens in the back, and they will pray for you. You can tell them as much or as little. And they're just going to pray. Man, we tell them to pray big and we tell them to pray bold. We tell them to pray that the authority of Jesus would be in the life of the believer, that he would see them, they would feel him seeing, that he would enter and get close, they would feel him entering and getting close, and that he would step into their life and they'll never be alone, never be forsaken. And so wherever you need to go, we invite you to do it this time. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Move when you're ready. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.